0: you to introduce uh, kids to, I think, concepts that they have not yet been introduced to. Um, but that's the Bible. The Bible is not a G-rated uh, movie, right? So I'll give you a heads up if you're on for the coming weeks. Next week we do Ruth, then the following week we do Bathsheba, yeah. And then we do, uh, then we do Mary on Christmas Day. That one will be all right. Although, you still got some, (laughs) you still got some splaining to do. Uh, Anyway, so what are we doing? We, We are in a series this Advent season on the mothers of Jesus. These are the characters that Matthew records in his genealogy of Jesus, you can go to Matthew chapter 1, and you can read there the genealogy of Jesus uh, in which there are a number of women mentioned. Now, the reason there's a genealogy at the beginning of Matthew is because in the ancient world, if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to prove the fittedness of a person for a task, let's say, or an office, what you would do is you would show their pedigree. It was their resume, and the resume was actually their genealogy. And so Matthew, his purpose is to convince the Jews of the first century that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah. That is, He is the one who is the Israelites have been waiting for for a very long time who would come and bring the kingdom of God to them and restore their nation and bring peace and flourishing to, uh, to the world? And they've been waiting a long time for this and been waiting for and been, been introduced to various candidates for the role. Uh, and they have failed time and time again. And Matthew is trying to convince them that this Jesus actually fits the, the role. He is qualified for the job. Now, when you would do a pedigree like that, a genealogy like that of course you're going to include great men right like kings so David King David's in Jesus genealogy and King Solomon is in Jesus genealogy of course they're going to be included and you might include the, the patriarchs depending on how much you know about the Bible the Genesis stories of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will be uh, familiar to you and they're great men in the history of the people of Israel and you might even include some women um but respectable women, right? Like Sarah, Rebecca, um, Leah, these kind of women. Um, But Matthew doesn't do that. He includes the women that I just rattled off, and every single one of them is involved in something that Taints their reputation. So last week we looked at a woman who pretended to be a prostitute. This week we're going to look at a woman who actually was a prostitute. Uh, In the coming weeks we're going to see that sex scandals are part of the history of Jesus' lineage. Now, not only that, each of these women is either a foreigner. So, she's not part of the covenant people of God, the Israelites, that God entered a relationship with way back in Genesis chapter 12 with their father Abraham. They're either a foreigner or they're treated as a foreigner. Some of them were not sure if they're a foreigner, and they're certainly treated as a foreigner. Why on earth would Matthew do that? Why would he include, of all the people he could include, why would he include these women? Well, there's probably a number of reasons for it, but I'll tell you one anyway. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, after the genealogy is done, Matthew says that Jesus would come to save His people from their sins. That's why Jesus came into this world. And one of the things Matthew is doing when he highlights each of these women is that there is a history of sin in the very ancestry of this Messiah who has come. Now, if this, you know, slogan, he has come to save his people from their sin, if it applies to any of these women, it certainly is going to apply to Rahab. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life or the story of Rahab and see how she is saved because uh, it's a it's it's tremendous in Hebrews chapter eleven. I forgot to put my little sticky note there, so I'm gonna. It takes me a bit to find it. In Hebrews chapter eleven, what is called the great chapter of the heroes of the faith. There's many people mentioned in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, people who have uh, been faithful to God in various ways. Rahab is actually mentioned, and she is mentioned in verse 31. It says this about her, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. What we're going to do this week is we're going to look at the faith of Rahab. Last week we saw that Jesus the Savior comes to save us by grace, that it is not by anything we have done that we receive God's kindness. It is simply all of grace. It is a gift. We didn't earn it, we don't deserve it in any way. This week we're going to see how we experience that grace or receive that grace by faith. We're going to look at five things. Uh, with Rahab here with respect to her her faith. We're going to see that her faith is exclusive. We're going to see that her faith is singular, that it is enduring, that it is active, and that it is a missionary faith. Five things. Let's go. First of all, we see that Rahab's faith is exclusive. The story is basically this. Rahab... The prostitute in the city of Jericho, she gets up one day and she's getting ready for work and she hears a knock on the door, maybe some early customers, she doesn't know, she opens the door, and lo and behold, standing in front of her are two Israelites. This is not good. This is the start of one of those days where you just want to close the door and go back to bed because you know Everything is starting on the wrong foot. She meets these Israelites and she's heard about them. Okay? She's heard that they have a reputation, that they are a dangerous people, that the, the people of Jericho, they better be, they better look out for because they are formidable. In verse 2, it says, The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites come here tonight to spy out the land. So they're on the lookout for these Israelites. The king of Jericho has heard that there are some spies from Israel in town, and he's hunting them down. He's looking for them because they're a dangerous people. And in verse 9, it says this. It says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. So Rahab has heard about these Israelites. They know, they've, they've heard stories about how the Israelites have been conquering people as they make their way from Egypt all the way to, uh, to Canaan, their, their promised land. And Rachel is as afraid as the king of Jericho and everybody else is. Okay, but notice what she says in verse 9. She says, I know. That the Lord has given you this land. She doesn't say we know that the Lord has given you this land. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. She is speaking personally. She's not speaking communally. Her response is not just fear like everybody else who's like, oh man, here come the Israelites and they're going to smoke us. We got trouble. We got to get ready to defend ourselves. She doesn't have just fear. She has fear and something else. What's that something else? Well, verse 11 tells us. It says in verse 11, When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rachel knows something about this God, that He is the Lord... This is the covenant name of God. This isn't just a general word for God. This is like God's uh, personal name that the Israelites knew and that He was Lord of heaven and earth, that He was the Lord of everything. Now, you've got to understand something. This is a long, long time ago. She is a pagan. She is a Canaanite. She believed in all kinds of gods. Everybody believed in all kinds of gods back then. There were big gods, there were little gods. There were local gods, there were regional gods. There were gods of the sky, and gods of the sea, and gods of the land, and gods of everything in between. There were gods, 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 gods. She was a polytheist, okay? That's what that means, many gods. But here, she says, this god, your god, he is the god. God of heaven and earth, that is, He is the God who reigns and rules absolutely over everything. This is utterly incredible. This is, this is the very first convert, you could say, to, uh, to Judaism, to the, 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 the faith that gave birth to Christianity. This is the first convert of this in the world. Our age is a very pluralistic age. Right? We have people who say, hey, look, we all believe different things, we all want to believe different things, we all have different ideas, and so you believe X and I believe Y and it's all good, no problem. Her age was even more pluralistic than ours was. It was normal to believe that, than ours was. It was normal to believe that there were lots of gods. Everybody believed that there were lots of gods. It was just like breathing. And here comes this monotheistic religion, not polytheistic, poly-many-theist god, polytheistic but mono, one theistic God. Judaism was a monotheistic religion, and, and it comes along and it says there's really only one God. You can talk about all these other gods, and those might just be spirits or whatever you want to call them, but when you want to talk about God who actually has power, who can control things, who has authority over absolutely everything, there's only one, and he's ours. And she embraces that, sort of. I mean, I can't say definitively that she became a monotheist in that moment and didn't believe in any other gods at all. But at the very least, she came to believe that there was this one God, the God of the Israelites, who was absolutely in control of everything. And how do we know that? Well, verses 12 and 13. What does she say? Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord. So, by your own God, okay? And notice she doesn't say Your Lord. She just says, the Lord, which is a hint that she is believing. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Okay. She pleads for her family's mercy. She has confidence that this God of the heavens and the earth is with the Israelites and she has no evidence of that, but she's heard the rumors. And she, because of that, has decided that she needs to plead for God's mercy on behalf of her people and certainly on behalf of her family. Now, what's the lesson here? How do we apply this to the here and now? You have people in your life right now who you think to yourself They'll never believe in Christianity. There's just no way. They are so resistant. They are so entrenched in their own way of thinking of things. They simply cannot imagine. I simply, sorry, cannot imagine that they would ever actually be open to Christianity. And this story says, ha, to all of that. Because here is Rahab coming to believe in Jesus. See, you got to understand, Christianity is not just for a certain type of person or a certain type of people, right? You hear this in our culture all the time that, you know, uh, you're a Christian because you were born here. If you were born in Saudi Arabia, you'd be a Muslim. Christianity is just sort of a cultural religion. But the reality is, is that Christianity is, is the, the opposite of a cultural religion. Christianity is a religion that actually is open to all. It is for all. It's not for a certain kind of person. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. She was as far from the truth as you could get. She was as far from morality, as as far from doing what is right in the sight of God as anybody could possibly be. Think about this. Of all the people that the spies could have gone to, when they went to Jericho to spy out the city, and they're figuring out, how are we going to attack this place? And we need to know what the lay of the land is. Of all the people they could have gone to, they go to her house. Why? Because this is how God works. God always chooses the unlikely. God always chooses the marginalized. God always chooses the, it's not the underdog, but the, the, the person on the outside since the very very start it's been like that because the gospel that's how the gospel works listen all religions in this world basically divide the world into the good are in and the bad are out the good are in and the bad are out so you can be a good muslim you can be a good buddhist you can be a good hindu if you practice the religion properly then you're doing well you are a good muslim a good buddhist a good hindu and therefore you are you are in as long as you are sincere as long as you are trying your best as long as you are practicing the the various rituals and putting uh the teachings of the religion into practice in your life you are you are somehow able to be to be part you can you can succeed that's okay and you you know you hear christians do this too sometimes you know Frankly, um, I know I beat on this drum fairly regularly. I apologize, but it's one that I'm very concerned about, to be honest with you. Young people, young Christians who date a non-Christian. They're deepening their relationship and they're looking towards marrying that person. And the Bible says very, very clearly that Christians cannot yoke themselves, cannot unite themselves to a non Christian, that it is not something that they ought to do. There's very good reasons for that. I don't have time to explain why at this point. If you want to know, talk to me afterwards. But here's the response I get But they're a good person. And with all due respect, my response is who cares? Christianity is not about being a good person. Many of you Christians in this room right now know secular people who don't have any faith at all, who are better people than you. Be honest. You know someone. They are more moral, more upright, more hardworking, more honest, more sacrificial. They're good people. But at the heart of the Christian faith is not not being a good person and doing the right thing. The gospel is that the humble are in and the proud are out. And that's exactly what Rachel is. Rachel, or Rachel, Rahab is. She is humble. She she says to the spies, she says, Please, rescue me and my family. Judgment is going to come. I deserve it. She doesn't say to them, hey, like, have you noticed, like, I'm, I was a really nice guy. I opened the door for you, you know, and I, and I gave you guys coffee and all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm a good person. Let me be saved too. No, she throws herself on the mercy of the spies and says, please, rescue me. She humbles herself. And that's all that God is looking for from you and me. Why do you think that the Christian tradition says that the ultimate Sin, the sin that is under all the other sins that we ever commit. I don't care if you have slept around with a dozen people or if you are greedy and you never give your money away or if all you ever do is steal a couple pens from work. You think that you're a little bit of a sinner or if you think you're a tremendous sinner. You know what's sitting behind all our sins? Pride. That's what it is. It's saying to God... I don't want to submit to you. This, our culture right now, what do we say? I just got to be me. Live your own truth. You can go your own way. <laughs> these, are, these are all just different ways of saying the same thing. I want to run my own show. And, Chris, and look. <laughs> Every religion in the world actually caters to that tendency because it says, here, do this, and you're in. What does that do? For those of us who are good at following rules and instructions and stuff, it just feeds our pride because we go, oh, I'm doing it. Yeah, I'm doing it. And some of us, we turn the Christian faith into that too, and we say, hmm, I'm coming to church. I'm there on Sundays when, when the World Cup final is happening. At the same time as church by the way that's happening this year 10 a.m. the World Cup final December 18 I am already in a moral quandary (laughs) I'm there on those Sundays I don't skip I pray regular I do all these things and all it does is feeds our pride but here is Rahab standing before you and standing before me and saying listen all God wants from us is our humility our willingness to admit, I don't measure up. I've made a muck of my life. I'm an absolute disaster. I'm putting my trust in you. Now, who who is Rahab putting her trust in? Well, she's putting her trust in this weird promise that the spies make. The spies say, here's what you got to do. You got to take this Scarlet thread or cord, you got to put that over your house. And everybody stays in the house. And when we come, and we're coming. When we come, we'll see that thread and we will not enter that house and we will not attack anybody underneath that thread, that scarlet thread. Well, if you know your Bible well, that is a, a, a foreshadowing of the Passover. When the Israelites were in Egypt and they were about to be freed, and God was was bringing His greatest plague on the Egyptians for refusing to give His people freedom, He said, "I'm going to kill the firstborn in every home. But if you kill a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house and stay underneath that blood, you'll be safe." When the angel of death comes, it will pass over you. That's why it's called Passover when the Israelites and when Jews today remember that event. But if you fast forward to the time of Jesus, there's a place where Jesus is walking, uh, walking along and John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, this scarlet thread way, way, way way back in in Joshua chapter 2 is pointing all the way to Jesus who lived for you and died for you so that if you put yourself under his blood, if you entrust yourself to him, if you say, I don't deserve your mercy, God, but I am coming to you through Jesus Christ in his name, trusting in his perfect obedience, then you are saved. And that's for everybody. That's for the smart guy, the dumb guy, the rich guy, the poor guy. It's for the Asian, for the white person, for the black person and the brown person. It is for all of us who will humble ourselves. Not all, any of us who will try to prove ourselves. That's point one. An exclusive faith. The other ones are a lot quicker. Let's carry on. Rahab's faith was an exclusive faith, but it was also a singular faith. Remember, everybody's afraid. Everybody's freaking out that here come the Israelites. Rahab's the only one who believed. And, you know, one of the things that's important about coming to church is many of you spend so much of your time out in the world where Almost nobody that you come into contact with believes what you believe. You're at work or you're at school, you're, in the, you're, in, you're shopping. Wherever you are, there aren't many people who are believing what you believe. And it is very hard to believe things when the people around you don't believe. So when you come to church, you can look around, you can say, I'm, I'm not crazy. There are people who believe what I believe. Even if the world says I'm crazy, I know I'm not crazy. And it's very hard when you're in a situation where you are the, the vast minority of, of people and you have, have beliefs and, and those beliefs, they start to rub up against the values of the culture a little bit. Man, oh man, the pressure to conform, the pressure to, to, to just ignore it, even in that space, it can be absolutely crushing. I don't know if I've used this before in this context, but it's like when you go to a, a hospital or a hotel and you press the button for the, for the uh, elevator and the, the elevator stops and the doors open and there's like eight people in the elevator and you step into the elevator. I challenge you to try this sometime. Don't turn around. <laughs> Just stand in there that way, facing the wrong way, And see how long you can do it. You will feel the pressure, the unspoken pressure, to turn around. And now, as we start to see some of the, the values around us that are really starting to rub hard against Christianity, it's getting difficult, more and more difficult for us to, to, to be able to, to hold on to this so-called singular faith. But remember what Jesus said. He said, when the world hates you, keep in mind, the world hated me first. And he also said, blessed are you if you are persecuted for my name's sake. She had a singular faith. Let's move on. She had an active faith. Listen, faith is not faith until you do something based on that faith. You can't sit around and say, yeah, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I'm a believer. And not actually take a step in obedience based upon that faith. James is not the only New Testament, or Hebrews was not the only New Testament writer to uh, talk about Rahab. James talked about Rahab too, and listen to what he says. This is James chapter 2, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, I know there's questions about Rahab lying here? Is it ever okay to lie? And that's a, an interesting theological question. But what James is getting at here is she had a faith that actually produced an action. You know, if, if, if you say, oh, I believe that that, uh, that, that doctor can... can perform a surgery that I desperately need, but you never actually let yourself lie on the table so that he can slice you open and perform the surgery, it does not matter how much you believe in his ability to do it. Faith is an active faith. It's not not the thing that, that makes us right in God's sight, no. But it's a thing that produces action that demonstrates our faith. It was also an enduring faith. I mentioned the pressure before but I'll say it again, Rahab did not crack under pressure. Think about this, okay? I got this from Charles Spurgeon, and he said it in a much more eloquent, flowery way than I'm going to say it. Imagine, imagine Ahab, what she could have been thinking. These two spies come, they say that we're coming for you, and she can say, well, yeah, okay, you're coming for me. But the, the rest of the Israelites, they're all still over on the other side of the, the Jordan River. And in order for them to ford the river and get to our side, they're going to have to go way north because that's where the shallow water is. They can't get through uh, right across the, the water here. So they're going to have to go way north. And when they get over way north, they're going to have to come down through all these other tribes and, and have to defeat them. And even if they do defeat them, they're forces are going to be like seriously diminished by that process that by the time they get to us we'll have no problem with them and besides we're Jericho we've got the wall nobody has ever ever been able to defeat us because of our awesome wall she could have said all those things and think about this when the Israelites do get there She looks out the wall, and she says, okay, they're here. i got my thread up up, uh, um, uh, over my doorpost. I'm safe, and and here they come, and i got my family here, and we're all ready for them. And then what happens? The Israelites start to walk around the city. And they don't say anything. They just march. And then they blow their horn. And she goes, okay, maybe this is some new technology out of Egypt I haven't heard about. Okay, but I'm sure tomorrow they're coming. Next day, they walk around, and then they blow their horn. And she's like, boy, this is getting kind of weird. By day seven, she could be freaking right out and thinking, my my goodness, why did I put myself in, in with the Israelites? Why did I pick this team? This is like the worst bet of my life. They're crazy. All they do is march around. And then the last day, they're marching around, and they're screaming at us. And yet, What does she do? She stays under the thread. You might think to yourself, friends, I don't know if I can have an enduring faith in the midst of the things that are challenging my own, but listen... If God can give an enduring faith to Rahab and if you go on vacation in Muskoka sometime and you see that God can grow, this is one of the things that always blows my mind. You go to Muskoka and you see these rocks, these sheer rocks, and some honking cedar is growing out the side of the rock and growing straight up. There's, there's like no soil. It's all rock. And this massive cedar tree is growing out of it. If he can do that, he can create an enduring faith in your paper thin soil of a heart it was an enduring faith and lastly it was in a missionary faith as soon as Rahab came to trust in Jesus what did she do she pleaded for her family because she got mercy she wanted others to have mercy too when you when the penny drops for you you want to know if you're really a believer One of the ways you can know if you're really a believer is if your heart beats with a longing for other people to believe like you do. I want everybody in this room to one day buy an Instant Pot. I am a firm believer in those things. They're amazing. They turn fools like me into gourmet chefs. You can... You almost can't screw it up. I love the Instapot. I'm a believer in the Instapot. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I am a believer in that the fact that he shed his blood for a sinner like me. He willingly died on the cross for me. He willingly laid down his own riches and glory and majesty. He set it all aside. He came into this world. He wrapped himself in flesh. He endured the humility of of behaving like humans and being among them. This is the God who created the universe and he endured that and he went to the cross and he was stripped naked as he was nailed to that piece of wood and he hung there for my sin. The, the king of the universe was hu- humbled and humiliated for me. I believe that with all my heart and I want you to believe it too. And people might say to you, well, your attempt to convert, you go ahead, have your beliefs, but but don't try to convert me of your beliefs, come on. We should all be allowed to just hold on to our beliefs. That's a belief statement. When someone says to you, we should all just believe whatever we want, they want you to believe like them. How come they're allowed to tell you to believe like them? You're allowed to tell them to believe like you. Wrestle through the ideas together. Wrestle through the claims together. Wrestle through the satisfaction together. What makes more sense of the world? What makes more sense of my experience? What. What brings me hope and joy? Rahab had an incredible faith. She was a Canaanite prostitute. An ancestor of our God. May we have a faith that is even just a a fraction of what Rahab displayed. And thankfully, it's not how much faith you have that saves you. It's a true faith that saves you. Remember, when the Israelites were freed from Egypt, there were people walking through that Red Sea saying, this is awesome. God rocks. He obviously is the best. And we are... We are killing it over here on our way through the Red Sea. And there are other people walking through the Red Sea going, oh man, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Both of them got through. It's the object of your faith that matters, not the amount of your faith that matters. And Jesus is the perfect object of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you thank you thank you that you save us by grace through faith Oh, the pressure is off lord to perform thank you for that thank you that you just accept us in the mess that we are and we pray lord that 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 truth would just be pounded deeper and deeper into us as we study these mothers of jesus who Who come with baggage who come with stories of pain sometimes of being abused sometimes of being big sinners and yet every single one of them was was welcomed into your family and if you will do that for them we know you'll do that for us too I pray for anybody here, Father, who who does not know you that way. I pray, Lord, that they will see in, in you a God who is welcoming. A God whose arms are open wide to receive any and all who would lay down their pride and put their trust in your Son, who is so worthy of our trust. In his name we pray, amen. All right, guys, if you are in grade five or six, you are free to join your teacher for sermon breakout. And because of the timing, we do have, uh, we do have an opportunity now for a question or two. Uh, we like to, when we have time, to provide an opportunity for you to ask questions after the message to share, uh, you know, ask something that you, you would like clarification on. Uh, we can go deeper into one of the points, perhaps. You are free to ask right now. You can text my phone number. It'll be up on the screen momentarily. I'm sure my phone number. Yep, there it is. Uh, or you can just raise your hand and ask me right now. Yes. Yeah, so uh the so this was more of a comment than a than a question but saying that um there are theologians that that argue that Rahab, you know, was was we, prostitution didn't work in the ancient world in the same way that it would work here in the modern western world although that's not true because there's human trafficking happening around us right now. But uh she was she was likely some argue that she was likely uh uh, an indentured slave as uh, working in her, working in her role. Um, I'm not saying that that's not true, the, but there, the argument against that is is that uh, she would not have been able to plead for her family if that was the case. Maybe it's true, um, but and if it is true, then certainly her longing to be freed um, is certainly something that she would she would know deep in her soul, and maybe it would make her more willing to, to take a risk on the God of Israel uh, because of her state. And actually, that is a good point in the sense that you'll never, nobody, nobody has ever come, nobody has ever become a Christian and come to Jesus by being told that they're a sinner. I know, I tell you guys you're sinners all the time, right? Why, why do I bother then? I know. But what I mean by that is, is you have, to, you have to experience it in, in your own heart. You have to know it in your own heart. It has to be shown to you. Oftentimes, it's shown to us in pretty dramatic, painful ways. Um, but here is, here is Rahab, and if, if that theory is true, here she is as a picture of someone who is enslaved to sin. Not purposely, or not... Uh, not uh, What's that word? Voluntarily, because someone has enslaved her, but she's a picture of what it means to be caught in your sin. You have to come to that place where you know that you are, you are caught in your sin, that you are desperate in your sin. You are unable to overcome your sin, and that's why you need a Savior. Because if you ever come to the place where you're like, you know, I got this. If you're living in the world where you think, I can, I can deal with this myself, you will never come to Jesus. He will never be found Lest sin become bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Mark can tell you who that's from. Maybe, right? Is it John Owen? We're going to say it's John Owen. Uh, Can our faith save our family members and loved ones the way Rahab's did? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um. Well, I would say that in the New Testament, we read that God still upholds a covenant between His people and Himself. And that's one of the reasons that we baptize not just Christians, but the children of Christians, because we believe that God works covenantally through families. At the same time, I don't believe, though, that... I'll take myself for an example. I don't believe that my faith is going to be the means of my children's salvation, given the fact that all my kids are older and are able to make their own uh, decisions about whether they're going to follow the Lord or not. That's between them and the Lord. I pray for it. I hope for it. I long for it. But I cannot guarantee it no matter how much I believe in in Jesus uh, we are all called to make our own faith real um, and authentic with the Lord can you build a little more on how you said it's about your object, objective faith rather than the amount of faith what does that look like how can we set our faith in the objective of Jesus if we don't have that substance of qu- or quantity of faith okay uh, what I'm trying to say here is, I'm simply trying to make the point that um, what saves us is not how, how strong our faith is or how pure our faith is. Remember I said that Rahab, you know, she, she believed in the true God, but she probably was still polytheistic in the sense that she didn't just shed her cultural background and, and all the things that she had known as a canaanite in her in her life uh, those things were still with her and so her faith was not pure it was not complete it was not perfect it was not comprehensive it was n- not really mature probably but that didn't matter because it was the the, the the quality of faith in the sense that she had the right object of faith that mattered like if you if you're like let's say you Run off a cliff, and then you're like, "Oh no, I ran off a cliff! I'm about to fall and die!" And you're hurtling towards the earth, and you see a root of a tree sticking out of the cliff. It's not you going. I saw that tree. That is a that is an oak tree, and I know that they have very strong roots. So that that that. That root will definitely save me. It's not that that saves you. It's not you recognizing that it's a strong root, that it's a thick root, that it looks like it's got a lot of life in it and that it can bear your weight. That's not what's going to save you. What's going to save you is reaching out and grabbing on the root. You know it's a root. You're desperate for salvation. You grab on the root. It's not you that saved yourself. It's the root that saved you. And you can grab that root whether you are knowledgeable about forestry. Wow, this is really going... (laughs) Uh, And you know all about the root systems of different types of trees, or if you know nothing about it except that it's a root and you grab it. (sighs) That's what I'm trying to say. Maybe I'm not saying it really well, Okay, I'll give you one more really quickly. This is the one I use all the time, never fails. If this does not work for you, questioner, I don't know what else to say. You're in the desert, you're dying of thirst, you're running along, no, you're walking along because you're dying of thirst. You see a well, you look in the well, you go, water! But you can't get to the water because there's no bo- bucket or rope. If you're going to dive in the well, you're going to drown and die. So you keep walking. But as you walk, you find a rope with a bucket. And you go, hallelujah, I'm saved. You grab the rope and the bucket. You run back to the well. You drop the rope and the bucket into, into the well. Only one end. And you pull up the, the rope and bucket. And you drink from the bucket. And you say, hallelujah, I'm saved. What saved you? Huh? Huh? The water saved you. Did you need the bucket and the rope? Yes. Did you have time to test whether the rope was strong enough to hold the bucket or not? No. You just saw, this is what I need. You grabbed it knowing as little about it as possible, and you used it to drink the water. That's what I'm talking about. Jesus is the water. Everybody here now knows enough to put their trust in the water. Jesus lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. You don't need to know more at this time. That's all you need to know to be saved. I know, it sounds too easy, doesn't it? And that's one of the critiques of Christianity is that it's too easy. But my response to that is, a religion that is so different from every other one and sounds too easy to be true, it probably is. Mic drop, boom.